0: You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. This reading is from Malachi 1.1 1, 1, and Malachi 3, 1 through 2 The Oracle of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day that we can all be here. And I thank you for the refining work that you do in our lives and that you wash us clean. And I pray that you would open our hearts today to the scripture and the message and the things that you have to tell us as a congregation and as individuals. And we thank you that Yvonne's here with us today. And we pray that you would continue to help her heal. As from our perspective, there's a lot going on. But in your perspective, it is all totally under control. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thank you, Elin. Good morning to all of you guys. Good morning, Yvonne. Good to see everybody. Um, I want to start this morning by talking a little bit about false impressions or wrong impressions. Um, have, ever you, have you ever had a situation where you had a wrong impression of somebody? Never? <laughs> That's what I thought you'd say. <laughs> That's happened, right? Yeah, you thought somebody was some way, but then it turns out somebody is another way. Have you ever had somebody have a wrong impression of you? Right? Okay, more people have experienced that. Um, <laughs> Um, Maybe because we don't admit we're wrong, right? Maybe that's part of the problem. And that can be a significant thing, right? Because what you believe about somebody else or what somebody else believes about you greatly affects how they relate to you. Um, A couple of years ago, I had a friend, actually kind of a close friend, whose life circumstances changed, they were struggling with certain things, and and I didn't really see them a lot. Uh, and I, I kept uh, reaching out to them and asking, hey, how are things going? Can we get together? You know, that type of thing. And they kept saying, oh, man, life's really busy right now. I, I just can't, you know. And then I'd wait a couple of weeks to try again. Same answer. Wait a couple of weeks try again. Same answer. And this kind of went on for a while. And, then, and finally, I was like, you know, that's okay. Like, whenever you're free, like, we can we can get together uh, uh, again. And, you know, and I thought, you know, that those kinds of things happen, right? But then years later, so not even, not weeks, not months, years later, I learned, because, because they told me, so it wasn't like a rumor or something, that the reason why they were keeping me at a distance wasn't so much the life circumstances that they were going through or any of that type of thing. It's because they had begun to believe that I didn't like them. I be, even though I was reaching out to them, they began to believe I, I, I didn't like them And that maybe if I would come together with them, that I would judge them because of the struggles that they were having. So I think shame was kind of clouding their thinking a a, a little bit in this. But you can sort of see what I'm saying, right? This wrong impression that they had about who I was and, and, and like how I felt about them and that kind of thing, that created this barrier between our relationship. What we believe about somebody What they believe about us, right, greatly affects the way that we relate to one another. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because we're just starting a new sermon series in the book of Malachi, and if you look in the book of Malachi, what you find is that the people of God have begun to have a wrong idea about who God is and what life with God is all about. And that greatly affected their relationship with God, and it greatly affected their relationship with each other, because that's how that works. When when your relationship with God is working good, then your relationship with other people is working good. But when this is not working so good, then this starts to not work so good um, either. And so this is what they were kind of going through. And think about how relevant this is. I mean, all of us are constantly creating an image of who we believe God is, right? Right? And what we believe life with God is supposed to to look like. But what if we get that wrong? What we believe about God affects, greatly affects, the way that we relate to Him. Now, I'm talking about more than just the doctrinal statement, right? Like, it's what we believe about God in our heart. Now, the reverse of that is also true. The way that you relate to God can sometimes tell you what you actually believe about who he is. Right, so you may have this doctrinal statement over here that's perfectly in line with the scriptures, but your functional doctrinal statement over here, like what you live off of, what you actually believe about God, that, that, maybe that looks a little bit different. Right, and, so, and Malachi is going to address all these kinds of ideas. And so today, we're just going to kind of introduce ourselves to the book of Malachi. And in order to do that, we're going to do a little bit of historical background work so we can understand how the message fits with the historical background that he's speaking into. But then I also want to talk a little bit about the structure of the book and then the overall message of the book. And the hope would be is that we would sort of get this a big picture of what Malachi is about, so that when in the coming weeks, Lord willing, we go through some of the details of Malachi, we'll be able to understand those details in light of this, this bigger picture that I hope to give um, today. Because there's a lot of, de- Malachi is not an easy book, right? Especially, I'll put it especially this way, like it's probably easier for an ancient person but for a modern person like me with some of the sensibility, I mean, I'm a, I'm a product. I'm, I live in this culture, right? And so when God says things like, um, I'm going to take the dung of your offerings and smear it on your face, <laughs> you know, like, wait, I'm supposed to preach on that? Like, how, how, how's that exactly work? What's this all about? You know? But understanding the big picture, like, helps us understand some of those details and, and how they actually fit together. So let's first talk about some of the historical uh, background. As Elan read, it begins, Malachi begins it this way in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord. Now notice that the word Lord is written in all caps, right? L-O-R-D. And what does that mean? This is the covenant name of God. This is Yahweh. So this is a word from Yahweh to Israel by, and this literally means by the hand of Malachi. So what kind of book are we talking about? This is an oracle, right? Uh, A Massah. It it, it carries with it the idea of like a burden, right? So it's like the prophet has this burden. He's burdened with this message, and he's releasing that burden to this uh, people. But not only is it a weighty message, it is a, a message that has the power to change things because it is a word from Yahweh. And what do we know about... When Yahweh speaks, right, things come into being that weren't even there before, like in Genesis chapter 1, right? When Yahweh speaks, does it return back void? It never returns back void, Isaiah fifty-five eleven says. It always accomplishes what it is sent out to do. So we have this heavy message, right, <clears throat> but it is, it is powerful to change people. Now, who is the one who wrote the message, the, the, the message of Malachi the oracle of, of Malachi? Well, we've already mentioned one author. Right? Whenever you talk about Scripture, there's always two authors, a divine author and a human author, author. right? And so Yahweh, this is a word from Yahweh, but he gives it through Malachi, whose name means my messenger. Um, the way of understanding Scripture that way reminds me of what the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, where he wrote, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So Malachi didn't just decide to prophesy one day, right? No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we have a situation where there's two authors. The Bible is a divine book and a human book, 100% divine, 100% um, human. But who is it written to? And here's another case in where we have two objects, right? There's two authors, but there's also two audiences. There's the original readers, right? Who is it written to in the text? To Israel. Who are they? They are the covenant people of God that God had delivered out of Israel. Now, when I say covenant, and we're going to talk about covenant kind of in the coming weeks because it's sort of like this this theme that makes its way through the prophet Malachi, I'm talking about a, a relationship that is based on promises that has the expect, expectation of faithfulness or loyalty or fidelity. So like a marriage is a covenant, right? Do you expect your spouse to be faithful to you? Right, yeah, you do. And they expect the same from you, by the way, right? So it's, and you, do you make vows when you, have, you come together in a marriage? Right, yeah, they, uh, so it's a, it's a relationship based on promises. So basically, God and Israel, they married each other. It's, it's a way of thinking about it. They have a covenant relationship together. So it's written primarily to Israel, but then it's also written to all of us, all of us who who submit under the Word of God, and, who, and we, right, have a covenant with God too. We're married to God, to Yahweh, through Jesus, right? And we participate in this relationship called the New Covenant. And we won't get into much of that today, but just understand that, okay, yeah, so we are recipients of this message too. So how about when, when was it written? Um, well, we don't know the exact date of this, right? But it's written around the middle part of the 5th century uh, B.C. But even more helpful than that is to think about it in terms of where does it land in terms of the history of Israel? Right? So as we already said, Yahweh delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt. He brought them through the wilderness to the promised land, The promised land was conquered. People were kicked out of the land. Then Yahweh ruled over his people through judges. But then per their request, right, because they wanted kings like the rest of the nations, remember? He gave them kings. All right, he said, fine, you can have kings. First Saul, then David, then who? Solomon. And then Solomon did something really special. What did he do? He built a temple for Yahweh to dwell in their midst. So remember that. Solomon builds this temple. Then the kingdom's split into two. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And then Jude, uh, Israel, right, is taken captive by the Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C. Because of why? Their idolatry, their sin. So they go, they go into exile. Then a little bit later, the southern kingdom, Judah, they're taken into exile too. They're taken captive by who? The Babylonian Empire right and then what happens there's kind of uh, a couple of waves of this but then in 586 BC the babylonians come into jerusalem where solomon had built a what a temple right he burns down the city and he destroys the temple by fire so you got solomon's temple built solomon's temple destroyed right and then the people are they go into exile and now they live in babylon Right? And then God in his providence, he raised up the Persian Empire. And then through that empire came king, do you remember? The Persian king, Cyrus. Right. And then what did he do? He conquered Babylon. He did that. But then he let the Jewish exiles who were in Babylon, that he let them go back to Jerusalem. And he gave them an edict. And what did the edict say? You can rebuild the temple. Right, so the temple made by Solomon. A couple hundred years later, it's destroyed, burned to the ground by Babylon. And then there was this this edict that was given to them that said, okay, you can go back and you can rebuild the temple. Now Malachi is written after the exiles have come back into the land. They've gone to Jerusalem and they have rebuilt the temple. And these offerings have already, they've already had offerings for a while in this temple. and So that's kind of like the situation that Malachi speaks into. And this helps us understand why Malachi is writing. It kind of gives us a backdrop, and that's what I want to turn to next. What's the occasion of his writing? Have you guys ever um, had a situation where you were starting something new? Maybe it was a relationship. Maybe it was a job, and things were really exciting about it. You You saw a lot of potential there. Like, if it was a job, you, were like, got along with your boss, you got along with your coworkers, you, you could see how you could move up in the company, and you were just, like, really excited about it. But then, like, as things kind of got a little bit harder, you met some trials, you met some tribulations, then your heart started to grow cold to that thing. Anybody ever experience that? Um, all previous girlfriends before Sarah, right? Like it's it, like, oh, that's how that all ended. Um, your heart just begins to grow, grow cold, right? And this is the situation into which Malachi is writing. The people of God, they had grown cold to the things of Yahweh, right? They were excited at first, but then their heart uh, grew cold. And to the point where they, at one, one time, they said in verse uh, 13 of chapter 1, regarding worshiping God at the temple, they said, what weariness this is. Now, this is tiring. You got to get up on Sunday morning, it's the weekend, and you got to, you know what I mean? It's like, man, this is tiring to go and do this, meet with the people of God, make these offerings. Like, how wearisome is this? And, and, and maybe part of that, that wearisomeness came from the fact that, okay, they had this expectation regarding what the restoration of Israel was going to look like. But then there was what they were actually experiencing. You have to understand, when when the exiles were in Babylon, they were kind of holding on to this promise like, you know what, God's going to reverse this one day. He's He's going to bring judgment on Babylon. He's going to send us back to Jerusalem. And then we're going to be able to rebuild the temple. And then the prophets would talk about this golden era. Right? So can you imagine, if you're one of the exiles, you're making your way back to Jerusalem, you've got an edict from King Persia, like the most powerful person on, in the world right now, that says that you can go and rebuild your temple. Right? Can you imagine the excitement that you would have? Right? But then, that, that excitement for Yahweh and the things of Yahweh, it started to, it started to wane. Right? And you can read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah that kind of goes up. Man, Ezra and Nehemiah, there's parts that sound so exciting, right? They like read the Bible from the beginning of the Everybody's just gathered and they're like, we just need to hear more of the Bible. And they just read from the beginning and then the middle of the day. And then they do that every day. And then they make these odes, we're going to do this and we're never going to do that again. And, we're, you know, and they do all this stuff. And then you like turn the page over, like one page over. <laughs> and it's like they're doing the same stuff again. Right, and so their hearts just are like womp, 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 and I, I you know, I can kind of relate to that. My heart can kind of just go like 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 that because they're back in the land, but they're still under the rule of Persia. Like even Nehemiah says, "Hey, well, we're you know, we're glad to be back in the land. We're still slaves, though. Like you got to pay tribute to Persia, all that stuff. We're still slaves, right? When they come into Jerusalem, what's Jerusalem look like? Not Good, like not, not good at all. They start the rebuilding project. Does everything go smooth? No, right? All the surrounding nations bring opposition. They have to stop, start, stop. Like they have to send letters to, per, like Cyrus dies. Nobody remembers the edict anymore. You have to, go, you have to go, back, go through bureaucracy. They've got to check the records. Like it's just, it's hard. It gets real hard, right? Then there's a famine. Then there is financial problems that they have, right? And then even when they laid the foundation of the temple, right, they, there's mixed reviews about that, right? Because the older people who remembered the first temple, the, the, you know, it's like you lived in this mansion. Hey, we get to go back to the land where we have this mansion and then God's going to be there. And then it's like, and then they're like, they're building this foundation for a shack, and you're like, uh, I, don't, I don't know what I feel about this. Right? So there's mixed reviews. You, you can read about um, what people felt about it in Ezra chapter 3, verse 12. There it says, But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers, of, uh, fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, the first temple made under Solomon, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid though many shouted aloud for joy. So some, but probably the younger people, like this is all new and exciting for them, and they're like, wow. And then for the older people who lived under Solomon's golden era, and they're, they're watching, oh, oh, is that, that's what we're building? And it's like, wow. And so the, the prophet Malachi, he, he is speaking to a people who are back in the land. They've got a rebuilt temple, right? but they, they don't know exactly what to feel about their circumstances. And they're beginning to wonder whether it's worth following God at all or keeping the covenant. They're basically saying, is this marriage worth it? That's how they're thinking about it. And some of us, man, we, like our relationship with Yahweh started off with this bang, Right? And then, you know, your heart just, you, you meet trouble. You know, as things get hard, you didn't know that this was involved with following Yahweh, and, and your heart just begins to, starts to grow cold a little bit. And, and, and the question then becomes, okay, why, why did you marry Yahweh through Jesus in the first place? Was it because, like, what you thought, like, he would give you? Or was it because of him? Like, uh, think about the marriage vows, right? For richer or even richer, no. Like, <laughs> for richer or poorer, sickness and health. Because you're, the, the whole point behind that is, it's you. It's you I want to have a relationship with. Not the, not the things that come with you necessarily. It's, it's you. And and so there's a sense in which the people of God lost their first love a little bit. And I think God wants to talk to us about that same sort of thing uh, today. So how exactly does Malachi speak into that situation? That's what I want to talk about next. This is our second point. I want to talk a little bit about the structure of Malachi, a little bit about the message of, of Malachi. The way that Malachi is constructed it's sort of organized around these six disputes, right? It's like there's this going back and forth. Uh, it's almost, I mean, it's kind of like the husband and the wife, right? They're going back and forth regarding the relationship that they have. And if you notice, in each of the six dis- disputes, there's sort of like these three elements that are found in each one of them. There's a claim that's made by Yahweh, Right? He says sometimes it's an indictment, sometimes it's a truth about himself, sometimes it's a rhetorical question, but there's this claim that he makes, then that claim is disputed by the people. Yahweh usually introduces it by, but you say, like, here's what I say. But you say X, right, and then that claim is defended. Yahweh basically says, let me explain to you why I'm saying this first claim. And, And you see that same pattern sort of repeated within each of the six disputes. For example, you can see it right away, right in the first dispute that we'll talk about next week, right, found, introduced by chapter, uh, verse 2 of chapter 1, where the claim is made by Yahweh. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. That's the claim, right? And then the claim is disputed. But you say, how have you loved us? Now, this is not like, tell me how you loved us. This is not like, I'm curious. I want you to say it out loud. It's not, it's like, how have you, how have you loved us? That's the, that's the attitude behind that. And then he, the claim is defended. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. So I, I chose you to be my covenant people. Like I, I married you, right, not other people. That's, and so he, he defends that original claim, and we'll, we'll talk about that defense uh, next time that we're together. But the point, just, I just want to give you an example of how these disputes are constructed. They have these three elements to it, a claim made, a claim disputed, a claim defended. But another thing going on with each of these disputes is that they're designed to sort of address a false impression that the people have about Yahweh that had been that taken root in their mind and in their heart, and that kind of played itself out in the way that they were acting, their attitudes and their actions, which dishonored God. If you, if you read through the book of Malachi, which, by the way, takes about 10 minutes just at a, Ten minutes. It's just ten minutes. Just at a, at a regular rate. You can, you, can read, you can read it in one sitting. If you read through it, you begin to see that there are really three major false impressions of God that they had. The people of God began to believe, you know what? Maybe, maybe Yahweh doesn't love us. Maybe he's not faithful to the covenant that he made to his ancestors. They have that belief. They began to believe, maybe he isn't a powerful king who is worthy of our honor. Because otherwise, why would we be experiencing all the things that we're experiencing? And They began to think, maybe, you know what, maybe Yahweh isn't just. There was a lot of injustice going around. So they thought, yeah, maybe, maybe he's not going to ensure that justice takes place in the land. Now, how relevant is this? Like, do people still have these questions? Yeah, well, of course, we still have these questions. We all wonder, man, does God, does he care about my problems? I mean, does he see what's going on in my life? And then you begin to wonder, well, maybe he can see, but maybe he doesn't have the power to do anything about it. You begin to wonder, does he have the power to do anything about the problems in, in my life? Or what about justice? There's a lot of injustice in the world, right? Is, he, is justice going to prevail in the world? Like we have these same questions and see, What we believe about God greatly affects how we relate to God and how we relate to one another, and it plays out in your life. And you see that happening with the people that Malachi is trying to address. These false beliefs, they issue forth in in dishonoring attitudes, dishonoring actions. Because of these false beliefs, they began to be half-hearted with their offerings. Both the animals that they were bringing and their financial offerings. They started to be unfaithful in their marriage covenants. They were basically saying like, you know, I'm not totally sure God is being faithful in our marriage covenant, so why should I bother being faithful in my marriage covenant? They begin to think crazy thoughts like that. They begin to treat one another unjustly taking advantage of one another. It's almost as if they're saying, man, if God is not going to reign over us with justice, then it's every man for himself, so I better, you know, look out for number one, right? That, that, that's what they were saying. Now, but here's the interesting thing about this, though. They kept worshiping at the temple. But sort of like in this half-hearted, going-through-the-motions type of way, but they never stopped. They just kept, they kept doing that, right? But what does Malachi say in Malachi 1.10? He says that he would rather that they would just shut the temple doors. Can you imagine? Just put a close sign up on the temple. Like, we're done. right? Can you imagine how heavy that is? Like, what if God came in today and said, man, you guys, your, your commitment to me is so half-hearted. Let's just shut Enclave down. Let's just d- don't even gather. It's... Forget about it. Like that is a, that's like a heavy message. And, and Malachi is speaking into that situation. And basically the main thrust of his message is, guys, you're wrong about Yahweh. You, you're, you're wrong about what he's like. Yahweh does love his people. He is faithful to his covenant. Yahweh is a powerful king. 24 times in the book of Malachi, he calls him the Lord of hosts, which basically means the commander-in-chief of the heavenly armies, like the most powerful being in the universe. Like, yeah, he is a powerful king, and he is just. And one day, called the day of the Lord, he's going to make everything right. He's going to bring judgment upon the wicked, and he's going to bring salvation for those who fear him, is what he says. Those who esteem my name Those who look to me for salvation. I will reconcile those people to myself and I will make them my, quote, treasured possession in Malachi chapter 3, verse 17. And I'm going to do all this, Yahweh says, through my Messiah, who is going to be announced by an Elijah like prophet in Malachi chapter 3 and in Malachi chapter 4. So it's not a mistake that Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, is it? Right? Malachi is the last prophetic word. Right? Then there's how many years of silence? 400. So let's see. Um, how long has America been a country? 250, 200, approximately 250 years? So longer than we've been a country. God's, God was silent. What was the the next thing spoken, though, right? The angel Gabriel says, yeah, remember Malachi? That Elijah-like prophet is about to be born. His name is John the Baptist. So I want to look uh, back at Malachi chapter 3, the the passage that Elan wrote for us, because, see, they had misplaced hopes Right, right, they were hoping in being back in the land. They were hoping in, hey, let, let's build this, this structure called the temple and, and do these sacrifices. But those, those things are good. But those things in and of themselves are worthless. The, the real hope comes from the Messiah, right, who is able to purify us from the inside out. That's, that's where our hope is. And so Malachi goes on to say in Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's what Yahweh says. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. It's Like, wait, Yahweh or the Lord, right? L- lowercase L-O-R-D. Is it Yahweh or the Lord? Like It reminds you of Psalm chapter 110, right? There's a Lord beside the Lord. Okay, whoa, what's that? And they both have the same attributes. And it's like, huh, there's a figure who's the Messiah who is divine. He will suddenly come into his temple. The Messiah's temple? And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Right? Because when, when, when Yahweh comes, right, he brings salvation, but he also brings judgment. Right? And, and they, come to, they go together. So you can't just be like, oh, it's great, God is coming. It's like, well, that's great if you belong to God. It's not so exciting if you don't. But who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire. And like a fuller's soap. Like very strong soap. And then down in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now all four of the Gospels agree that this Elijah-type prophet is John the Baptist, who is preparing the way for the Lord to come, this divine Messiah. And that divine Messiah is Jesus Christ, the Lord who comes into his temple and who is the only one who is able to purify it and to cleanse it. And we get a picture of that, right, when he comes into the temple and he's overturning tables He's stopping all commerce. He's telling them not to make. This is is my father's house, and you've turned it into a den of robbers. And what did they say to him? Do you remember? By what authority are you doing these things? You're acting like this is your temple. Because it is his temple. But even all of that was just a picture of what he wants to do with us. He is like a refiner's fire. For for those who are his, that fire comes, and then you are purified. For those who are not his, that fire comes, and you are consumed. But the fire comes either way. And God is is shaping his people. But he's not going to, you don't want to be in heaven unpurified. Like, that won't be heaven, actually, right? Like, no, you want to be purified. But guess what it takes? Fire really strong soap. And so Jesus is, is, you know, in Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about how we, the church, are the bride of who? Jesus. We are purchased by his what? His blood. We are cleansed by the watering of his word. That's what he says in Ephesians chapter 5. That's, that's, that's what the husband does, the, our, our husband Jesus does to us, his bride, and he's creating in us, he's making us into a living house, a temple for the Lord. he has to cleanse us. He has to, he has to purify us, and he's the only one who can give us a permanent cleansing, right? The, the sacrifices couldn't do this. The temple can't do this, right? Even when God, like, he, he punishes the people, by or chastises them at least by sending them into Babylon? Right? Like not even that creates the heart, permanent heart change that is necessary for the people of God. Only the person and work of Jesus does that. And, and when we think about Jesus' person and work, right? His crucifixion on the cross on our behalf, that, see that is what gives us a true and accurate picture of who God is. It's the cross that proves that God is everything that the readers of Malachi doubted him to be. He is a loving father who is deserving of honor and obedience. Because at the cross, he shows himself to be perfectly just. No sin is not covered by the shedding of his eternal son's blood on the cross. Perfectly just, holy, loving, for God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, and then the son came, and then he demonstrated he had authority over all realms, and then he showed how he establishes his reign by what? Dying. So he is a powerful king. He is perfectly just. He is perfectly loving. And see, what we believe about God matters because it greatly affects how we relate to him, how we relate to one another. And this is what the book of Malachi is trying to to get into our hearts. Because I I was just thinking about, we were kind of in exile, if you think about it, for two years, Right. And then we came, we came back, we were able to meet together in person again in a new renovated sanctuary. But none of that matters if God doesn't come and purifies us from the inside out. It doesn't matter how beautiful the sanctuary gets. None of that matters unless God comes. Those are not bad things. It's not bad to be in the land, not bad to be in the temple, it's not bad to renovate the sanctuary. But God needs to come and change us from the inside out. Thank God that he will if you belong to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you're you're good. Your loving kindness endures forever. You're worthy of our praise. But Father, we get really distracted and our hearts grow cold. Revive us, God. Cleanse us. Refine us. Bring us back to our first love. Do this in Jesus' name. Amen.